Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I'm joined by Chef Richard Neal. He's the CDC over at Bastion in Nashville, Tennessee. Previously, we've had Josh Haberger on, who's the executive chef there. Josh has kind of moved into a partnership role uh, within the restaurant group, Strategic Hospitality. Richard's there. They were both there uh, the last time I was there at Bastion uh, this past year, uh, earlier in kind of the May timeframe. It's an awesome restaurant and just wanted to have Richard on to kind of talk about his career and how he wound up at Bastion and everything. You know, I got to have the kind of the full authentic Bastion experience where previously when I had been to the restaurant, it was during the pandemic. So they had, you know, spacing and they had the big bar area, which is where they do all the music. They converted that into kind of an additional restaurant space and kind of separated Buddy out, you know, social distancing, all that stuff with the six foot distancing between tables and, and everything. So this was the first time that I was able to actually go, you know, sit at the counter in kind of the designated area where the tasting counter is. And then they have some tables for large parties that want to do that sort of thing there too. And just an awesome experience. You know, it's still kind of the same menu format. It's a tasting menu. They kind of break it out and they have different pairings and stuff as well. You can kind of do one-off pairings. Uh, you can do an a la carte situation um, with the drink situation and everything. So it's a great time. You know, they're playing great music, delicious food. Can't really ask for more. Kind of come as you are, casual environment. You know, nothing's too strict, nothing's too formal, anything like that. It's kind of free-flowing, loose, here to have a good time, eat delicious food, have some drinks. So can't recommend the restaurant enough to whenever, you know, you make it your way into Nashville. A lot of good restaurants there, a lot of cool places to kind of check out too as well. But you can follow Richard on Instagram. It's at Chef. Uh, you can also follow the restaurant on Instagram too as well. It's just at Bastion Nashville. You can follow us on Instagram too. At Spoon Mob, we're on all the other social medias at either Spoon Mob or Spoon Mob One, but mainly use Instagram. Check out the website, spoonmob.com. Different profiles for all of our guests are up there. Contact information, where to find them in social media, uh, links to all the episodes. We have a master page with links to every episode that we've done as we get closer and closer to 150 here. Check out our YouTube channel. We put all the episodes on YouTube uh, so you can find us there if that's kind of your preferred app to listen to podcasts. Or you can find us on Apple or Spotify, Amazon, anything. Any place that has podcasts, you can find us there. You can also write in questions, comments, feedback uh, to us, either through the contact portal on the website or directly email us, contact us, spoonmob at yahoo.com. Uh, we'll get back to you as soon as we can with whatever it is. If you're looking for a recommendation, have a question you want featured on an upcoming episode, just have uh, some thoughts or, or whatever. So it's always cool to get engagement from people that are listening and kind of hear their thoughts on what we're doing and kind of some of the guests that we've had recently on different episodes. So that's it for kind of the housekeeping items this week. So without any further delay, here's my conversation with Chef Richard Neal, the CDC Chef de Cuisine at Bastion in Nashville, Tennessee. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of your day here to chat about kind of your career and what you're doing now. You're over at Bastion, which we've had Josh on previously too as well. So that was an awesome conversation. He's kind of doing some other stuff with strategic hospitality and now and everything. But I want to get into kind of how you wound up with Bastion and what you got going on there and kind of the forward progress that you guys are making too as well with kind of putting your twist on things and the food and everything. But I always like to start at the beginning with everybody. How did you kind of first get involved with cooking and restaurants? Was it just something in high school that you fell into? Was it family was kind of always involved? How did all that transpire? I don't know, kind of, I guess, one of those like new age rowdy cook stories where I, I come from a long line of horrible cooks. Food was never a focal point. 
In my household, I think I was raised on cereal and hamburger helper. I was the youngest of three and my older sister somehow got into the restaurant business. And so when I was the summer that I had turned 15, noticed that she was getting these paychecks and being able to buy her stuff things. And I was like, I want that. So I ended up uh, like begging her and begging her for months to like get her to get me a job at this little like shitty steakhouse she was working at. And they needed a bus boy. And so I did that. And to this day, I still think that was probably the worst job I ever did. I did it for like, like a month. And I just remember being grossed out by, I don't know why, but I just remember being like grossed out by it. And again, this was not a fancy place at all. This was a very antithesis of, of fancy, but that they were always having more fun in the kitchen. And so it, it came up that they needed a dishwasher. And I like begged the manager and begged him. I was like, I don't want to do this bus with him. I, I, I'll go wash dishes. It kind of looking back on it now, he was, he was definitely breaking some laws, but he let me go back there and wash dishes at 15 years old. And I loved it. I love just being in the culture. I love being around the people that were like, did not care about what their raunchy words coming out of their mouth, the jokes they would crack on each other, the hard times and like fun times they would have. I just kind of got enthralled. So I kept having restaurant jobs just through the summers in high school. So I, I mean, I'd like made pizza for a summer. I got into like short order cooking, uh, mostly just like working fryers and stuff like that. Just like real gross kitchen jobs. I attempted to go to like normal college right after high school. I remember sitting in this Civil War history class. And I remember being like interested into the class. And about like, I don't know, three, four weeks into the class, our first assignment came up and it was some kind of like ridiculous, like eight page paper. And I was like, wait, I just got done having to do this kind of stuff. I don't want to choose to do it. So I ended up withdrawing. And then a buddy of mine, he and his dad owned this just a little deli. And he was a year ahead of me in school. He was withdrawing too. And he just like, one day we were hanging out and he was like, hey, he was like, I'm moving back to Greensboro, North Carolina. He was like, I'm just going to work in my dad's deli. He was like, I'm going to find a place to rent. He was like, you want to come with me? He was like, I'll get you a job at the deli. We can just be roommates. And I was absolutely did that for about a year and a half. And then being a 19, almost 20 year old kid in a college town without being in school, we threw a lot of parties. We had a lot of good time. I ended up getting two DUIs in a month, just being a, a stupid kid, dealt with all that decided that I needed to do something. So I moved back home to Atlanta, which is where I grew up, hung out at my mom's house for about a month. And we're just trying to figure out what to do. And just like the strange idea came in my head. And I had thought about it before, but I just went and checked out the Art Institute because they had a culinary program. And it was like something I could like put myself through and kind of like work and just like, I didn't have like the funds or the means to like go off to some CIA or anything like that. So I checked it out. And I remember getting into the program because I was like, like I had to do like English and math and I actually ended up getting an associates in fine arts just with a specialty in culinary. So I was just like, okay, well, if this food thing doesn't work out, at least I got an associate's degree. I can do something else. But it was in culinary school that I started really getting into it. And I ended up hating culinary school and I thought it was a huge waste of time. But that's because I was fortunate enough. I just kind of like randomly met this guy on the train one day because I lived in Midtown and school was up on the north side. I was on the train one day and this guy just approached me and he was just like, hey, he was like, I see you got, he was, he was like, are you in culinary school? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, well, I, the general manager at this, um, at this new wine bar that we're opening and we're just looking for like young people that just kind of want to come and learn and do all this kind of stuff. I got his like email and sent him an email and ended up setting a little interview and like went and met with him and uh, started working. It was like the first time I had gotten into like a from scratch kitchen where like people were like making things, tasting things, like really pride into what they do. And it was all over after that. You're in college when you're going through like that history class that you mentioned everything. What did you envision yourself doing or were you just going to college because that was the thing that you were kind of supposed to do at that time? Yeah, I had I had no vision. I was aimless. I was just there. I thought that's what you were supposed to do. So with culinary school, 
Was there anything in there that you thought was beneficial to you or like anything that you took away from it? Like, yeah, I really didn't like the most of the experience, but this one thing was like definitely worthwhile. I mean, the thing that seemed like was most worthwhile was just the exposure. The school, like it wasn't a dedicated culinary school. They had a culinary program. The most intuitive thing that I did at first was I think they taught me how to break down a chicken, but it wasn't like being able to like by happenstance, like get myself into some from scratch kitchens. I like by the second or third quarter, I realized that I was learning more at work than I was at school. I was working for more talented chefs at work than I was for people that at school that were teaching me. And I always had a distaste for school anyway. Yeah, I, I kind of, I don't know, I kind of started to resent culinary school a little bit, but I knew that I wanted to finish it. Uh, so I did. But I was also I don't know, one of those kids where I think some of the instructors uh, saw that I had some promise. And so they let me like skate by through some of their classes where I probably shouldn't have passed them, but ended up graduating. So, you know, I ask this to pretty much anybody who's gone through it. Would you recommend it to somebody, you know, somebody in your kitchen now? Like, hey, you know, really interested in being on the line. Like one day I can envision opening my own restaurant and everything. Do you think I should go to culinary school? Would that be beneficial to me? What would you tell them? I would tell them that it kind of all depends. I get asked this all the time at work by, you know, guests because we're right there guest pressing. And they ask me all the time. I'm the only one. Josh went to culinary school for a little bit. And then the, the other people I work with, I'm the only one that finished culinary school. And so everybody's just like, I don't know. None of us went to school and he did. But I think it's all depending on what you like. If you envision yourself as like a F&B director for an Omni hotel, like you should probably go to culinary school, get a bachelor's degree because that's what they're looking for. If you're looking to get into like tasting menus, like uber creative, like artistic form of food, then if you're going to spend... 40, 50, $60,000, take out a personal loan and go live in New York and work for free at some places or like scrape by, you know, like spend the money that way and get that, get that exposure and like get yourself into that world. Knowing what you know now, is there one thing that you wish was part of the curriculum at culinary school that wasn't like, whether it was like accounting or something that like you do now that you're like, man, I had to learn this the hard way. I wish they would have just had like a semester course on this and I could have learned this and it would have probably changed like some aspect of your day to day now. I don't know if there is one again. I mean, culinary school for me was almost 20 years ago and it has been a blur since then. But I remember having those feelings just like, I can't wait to get out of this so that I can just like focus on work. I actually, uh, there was a Garmaze teacher that, uh, we ended up like being able to have a good conversation afterwards, but I like, was really frustrated in his class one time because I had to like, I was supposed to work a shift, but something happened at school. And I had to like, I remember being feeling very inconvenienced and then he was giving me a hard time. And I think I like, I remember like kind of whispering to him one time. I was like, you know, like the old saying goes, those who can do and those who can't teach. Most of the stuff that I've learned that have become like incredibly beneficial are things that I either had to figure out on my own or things that, you know, through like different like mentorships, people have like, through their experience passed down. I think it's all real time on the job kind of learning is where I've learned the most. So what happens after kind of you finish there? Cause you kind of bounce between Atlanta and Nashville a couple times. You wind up in Nashville and wind up back in Atlanta and obviously back in Nashville now. So, you know, eventually there's a few stops along the way, but what kind of happens after, you know, you finish school? I always had kind of that like vagabond adventure spirit stayed in Atlanta like through culinary school and got into, I remember the, the chef that I worked for, his name was Todd Emmel. He, I worked for him like basically the three years I was in culinary school. And like, 
I, I, by the end of it, like I remember doing my internship or externship or whatever they call it. And I remember going to him and be like, hey, what am I supposed to do? And he was like, we like looked through paper. He's like, all I have to do is sign this. And I was already his lead line cook. And he was just like, just give me your papers and we'll just sign that. So I like that technically did my externship at the kitchen that I was already the lead line cook at. He taught me a lot. And I remember getting to a point I was about to graduate where I had just graduated. And he actually pulled me in the office and like sat me down. He was just like, Richard, I love you. He was like, I've really enjoyed working with you. He was like, you can't, you can't work here anymore. Go apply at Restaurant Eugene. Go apply at Bacchanalia. Go apply at Gunter Seegers. Like go apply at like the three. At that time, there were only three places in Atlanta. Like go and get into one of these kitchens. And he had worked with the executive chef at Bach at the time. And so I like, you know, sent a resume and email or whatever and ended up getting a stage and ended up getting hired. And then I stayed at Bacchanalia for, stayed there for about two years as a line cook. And then I got an opportunity to my first sous job. So I took that, which me and the chef did not work out very well. I was only there for about nine months and then left and then ended up at Restaurant Eugene for a little bit. Um, and then wanted to move. I was I was probably 23. I just gotten out of this relationship with this girl that I dated basically through culinary school and up to that point. And I decided that I was moving to Portland, Oregon. I sold all my stuff. I like put my like notice in at work, all this kind of stuff. And I think I was like finishing up my last like three weeks or something like that. And I was still really good friends with all the people that I worked with at Bach. And I remember like one day the chef that was eating Andy was, we were hanging out and like drinking beers or whatever. And he was like, Hey, he was like, Andy wants to talk. And Quatrano is the owner. What does she want to talk about? And he was like, what do you think she wants to talk about? And I remember setting up a meeting with her and going in and she and her offering me a sous chef job. And I remember like sitting there, like just kind of across this table being like, A, being offered the most money that I'd ever made before. And like at that time, Bacchanalia was like this like revered Holy Grail in the Atlanta scene. It's like the place you wanted to work. And I was like, Holy shit. Like, here's an opportunity for me to be a sous chef at this, like at this place. So I ended up not moving to Portland, staying there. And I stayed there for almost another three years as a sous. I met my wife there, a classic new server sous chef situation, but uh, ended up working out. But we dated for about a year and a half. Her mom's side of the family comes from a really small town, about two hours east of Nashville. I think it was 2010. So it was like during the 2008 debacle, her like her mom and dad ended up selling their house in Atlanta and like they inherited some like family land in a house up there. So they just moved up to the country. And so about 2010, she was like, Hey, moving to Nashville. And I would, it would be really cool if you wanted to come with me. So that's what brought me to Nashville the first time. And then I worked for Tyler Brown at the Hermitage Hotel the, the entire time. I was his chef de cuisine, which was an interesting experience, like going from Bacchanalia, which was kind of like modern American, but in that kind of like California French hot cuisine style you know, forward thinking, uh, this, it was at the tail end of like molecular gastronomy. We were doing a lot of that. We were, you know, we were experimenting a lot, really trying to push our own boundaries. And then I ended up at a hotel in a very corporate environment. It was weird, but it taught me a lot about management, which was cool. And I loved working for Tyler. I still have nothing to love for him to this day. And then I ended up, I was just like sick of it. And this was before the Nashville scene blew up. Josh had opened up Catbird Seat. There was never any openings to work there. There was City House, which I didn't want to make that kind of food, or there was the Hermitage Hotel. And so I stayed at the hotel the whole time. And then a buddy of mine in Atlanta who was at the time was working for Hugh Atchison. I just started like picking his brain. I was like, hey, will you like give me some guidance on like how to write a business plan? I'm going to try to open up a restaurant. Uh, and so it was kind of just like experimental mock or whatever. But we were just like, you know, for a couple months, just emailing back and forth. And I'd be like writing numbers, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And he'd be like giving me tweaks and edits. And again, one day he was just like, hey, he was like, I think you should show this to Hugh. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not showing this to Hugh. Like, you're crazy. 
And he, I remember him being kind of like, for, like giving me some tough friend love. He was like, you show it to Hugh or I show it to Hugh. He's like, I have all the emails. So I ended up showing it to Hugh and he bid on it. And he was just like, I think this is a cool idea. I think it could work really well, all this kind of stuff. And so we were going to do that. And we were going to do it in Asheville, North Carolina, because uh, my sister-in-law lives there. My dad lived there. Him, my mom and dad split up when I was really young and he lived outside of Asheville. So it's been summers up there. Always loved the mountains. And it was cheap back then. I mean, I remember looking at like places that were like under 15 a square foot, which just doesn't exist anymore. We were going to open up this restaurant to the point where we were like looking at spaces, talking to people. And then one of his other restaurants started to just not do well. And he was having to come out of his, you know, pocket just to keep it, you know, keep it afloat. And so I remember one day he was just like, hey, he was like, I, I have to put this project on hold. Like I got some shit I got to take care of. He was like, but I'm doing a ton of traveling. I'm doing a ton of like food and wine things, all this kind of stuff. He was like, I need somebody to like help me organize it all. He was like, how about move to Athens, help me with this stuff. And then hopefully this thing can get cleared up and we can pick the project back up. Did that, moved to Athens. We'd had our first kid by now too. So I was looking for a little bit more stability. Moved to Athens, Georgia. And then I worked with Hugh as his like travel and R&D chef for about a year and a half. He ended up having to close that restaurant. And then so that my project got put on complete hiatus, like indefinitely. And we were in Crested Butte one time doing some wine, like music, wine food festival thing. And the chef he had at five and 10 at the time was struggling a lot. And so he basically talked here. He just asked me if I wanted to take over five and 10. We had a long conversation about it. At the time I reluctantly said yes, because I didn't want to do it, but it ended up being fun. And it ended up that, that's where I got my star chef's rising star award was at five and 10, which was a, uh, it's a cool experience, but that's what took me from Nashville to Atlanta. So when you go to Bach, you said it's one of these like three restaurants at the time in Atlanta. If you want to be somebody in this profession, like that's where you kind of got to go work. How big of a difference was working there versus everywhere else that you would work for up to that point? Mass, kind of like looking at our industry now, kind of like old school and archaic, but I loved it and I thrived in that environment. But Bach was the kind of environment to where there were no like, there were no whisks for you to use. Like you had to bring your own equipment, you had to bring your own pepper mill, you had to have like, you had to take care of your stuff. It was the first place that I had like really worked where if there was a dish on your menu or like if there was a dish that came off your station, you were responsible for prepping all of it, whether it was a sauce, the protein, any of it. Yeah, I mean, it was just like, it was, a, it was a massive difference. It was definitely like, at that time, like, probably even to this day, one of the most like cutthroat kitchens I've ever worked in. But that's because I was surround, like, it was just a group of eight of us, super hungry, super driven, super talented, all just trying to like make a career for themselves. Um, it was like stepping into a whole different world. It was like a world of food that I never knew existed. Again, back to that thing, like, I didn't grow up in a food family. I think like, on like a fancy occasion, I think we may go to like Red Lobster or something like that. So I didn't even know this side of the food world existed until I got into Bach. So it was just, it was massively different. Being in like a cutthroat kitchen environment, maybe it depends on personality wise, like if you're competitive or not, but do you kind of size everybody up? Is everybody kind of like, I'm better than that guy at that, but like maybe he's a little bit better than me at that. So I got to like work on that. Like, is everybody kind of giving each other one eye, like across the room and everything uh, all the time? Cause you know, like eventually maybe they'll have like a sous chef position comes up and it's like okay well it's all eight of us are going to like be up for it so like how do i differentiate myself from everybody else yeah absolutely there was definitely some of that there was a lot of like positive kind of like jovial shit talking competition that went on i mean there was definitely a pecking order that was established and always being reestablished the way that bach worked was 
there was the owner of the executive chef and then there was the chef de cuisine that was like old school chef de cuisine kind of role where like he was responsible for the menu and the line cooks. And then there was two sous and then there was any given night, there was three cooks, but I think there was a rotation of like five cooks because we were open six days a week. And so like between those five cooks, like if there was a sous chef position that opened, there was like a, a pecking order. I never remember being it like shitty or or conniving or anything like that, but there was, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to eat his cookies. He's not going to take my spot. So when you get that first sous chef job and like it doesn't go well, like you and the chef just don't see eye to eye for whatever reason, how soon do you realize like this isn't really going to work? Like obviously there's a period where you're trying to figure each other out and then you're probably running into a period where it's like, all right, well, maybe I'll try and do it his way or vice versa or whatever and, and just try and bridge the gaps that are between you two. But when do you kind of realize like, this is not worth like the effort, like uh, this is just isn't going to work pretty quickly. And now it was an interesting experience because we like, we hit the ground running, like we gelled very quickly, bonded quickly, all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't until probably about like six months into it that I guess maybe some expectations that he had for this role expectations that I had different from the role some of his anger management issues and some of my anger management issues probably didn't help. But I remember happening pretty quickly where it was like kind of all like fine and dandy and then starting to like smell something in the air and then, you know, and then it becoming more tangible and then just being like, I just don't want to be in this type of environment. So but yeah, I remember talking like a buddy of mine who was the chef de cuisine at restaurant Eugene at the time. I remember just talking to him and be like, I don't know what to do. Like this isn't working out. I got to, I got to figure something out. I was like, I feel weird. Like, walking away from my first sous job, all this kind of stuff. And just like talking him through. And he was just like, dude, you're 22 at the time. He was like, you're so young. He's just like, and he, and he ended up operating. Me. He was like, Hey, I need a line cook. He's like, you just want to come cook with us for a little bit. He was like, till you figure something out. So I ended up doing that. And then one of his sous left. And then I kind of leapfrog everybody and took that sous job. But yeah, it, it happened pretty quick. When you come up with this restaurant concept, this business plan that you develop and you show it to Hugh and everything, and you, gives you kind of the green light at the time. What kind of was your concept? Was your idea? Is it something that you still kind of have in your back pocket for one day eventually want to do? Does he own like kind of the rights to it? Or like, is it just your idea? He was going to partner with you and then it just fell through. So it was like, well, I could still do this one day or. Looking back on it, I'm kind of uh, glad that it didn't work out because, you know, this was almost 10 years ago. I don't know if I would want to have that type of restaurant anymore. It was basically kind of just like this like modern bistro that so many of us are turning to, but with just like a focus on, I wanted to kind of get back into small plates, tasting menu, focused food, all that kind of stuff. But I wanted it to be in kind of like a relaxed environment. So it was kind of just like modern bistro focused on like small plates and stuff. Being able to mature a little bit and look back and I'm like, I'm actually kind of glad that didn't work out. You wind up having your first kid. You guys move back to Atlanta. You take this kind of traveling chef job with Hugh, right? What does all that entail? Is he just going on like morning shows and doing demos and like you're doing a bunch of kind of the like cooking all the way up to kind of a certain point? So they do like the five, 10 minute segment and then they kind of finish it off or like, what are you doing in that role while also trying to manage having a newborn or a child and like a family in Atlanta and you're on like the other side of the country on like a morning show or something? Yeah, some of that was uh, was tough, and uh, my wife definitely took some of the brunt of it, but she's a very gracious person. Yeah, I mean, uh, he kind of hit the nail on the head. At this time, he was traveling a lot. I think we were at least once a month going somewhere, sometimes twice a month, sometimes three times a month. Basically, any food and wine event 
he was invited to. And so we had to do that. We would go and do, I remember being in like the Crested Butte trip was uh, a music festival that they were having in Crested Butte where they, one of the dinners they wanted to match food with music. And there was this person that was going to like play his cello or violin or something like that while they're eating course. And each song would change with different courses and that kind of stuff. My job basically entailed, he would like agree to an event and get all his like demands or like what he needed to be responsible for all that kind of stuff. And then he and I would sit down and come up with the food, the menu we were going to do. And he gave me a lot of input and it was cool. But but then he would be basically be like, cool, go, go prep it. And so then I would just like go, I would usually work out at five and 10 and I would just go and like, make all this stuff, cryovac it, deli it, wrap it, just get it all. And we would pack it into coolers, put it on planes, ship it, get there, do finishing prep and touches and then like do these dinners. Are you in and out? Like you're there, do the event and then right back? Or like, do you get to like check out like whatever venue city that you're in for like at least a day or something like that? Or there was a lot of that at this, he was very much enjoying the travel and he, he was very gracious to like, just let me tag along. But yeah, there would be times where we'd be in like, New York City, be there for like three days and we only had to do one dinner. And one of the days he's just like, here, here's the company card. He's like, just, I'll be gone all day. Just go have fun. So in a role like that, probably no going into it like, yeah, it's going to be hectic, but it's not going to last forever. So whether he keeps traveling and you just get burnt out or, you know, family responsibilities or kind of slows down or whatever, if it's based around like cookbooks and stuff like that too. So is there anything when you get into that role that you're looking to get out of it? Like, are you looking, is it just like, let me check out all these other cool restaurants to get inspired? Or is it like, let me really try and hone my craft and like what my food voice is, you know, like, yeah, I'm cooking his food and trying to do all this prep, but also like, what can I throw in here that would be something that I would be interested in too? Like, is there anything you're trying to get out of that role at that time? The biggest thing I was just, it was my first time that I'd ever really gotten to travel like that and see places. So that was a big thing where I was just enjoying that. And the thing that I was like, I really wanted to get good at were if I was in this position where I was being the one asked to come and like do these events, do these travel events or whatever, I wanted to be really good at and really efficient at being able to like prep, package, execute, all that kind of stuff, just being able to like do it proficiently. So when you reluctantly take over at five and 10, how hard is that to come into an established restaurant kitchen and just kind of take over? Because everybody in there is just like, oh, hey, today we have a new boss. Like, awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I, I feel like I've done that too many times in my career. But there's definitely some of that. Luckily, with 5 and 10, they were like the, the strong people that were there were looking for a stronger leader to come in, show them some things. And so it wasn't a hard takeover that. And I had been working like they knew who I was. They knew what I was capable of and all that kind of stuff because they'd seen me like prep these things. And part during my travel and R&D times, like I did work with 5 and 10 and I would go in there with the chef and like I would help them like butcher, show them things sometimes or, you know, help them come up with specials and stuff. So it wasn't like just out of the blue taking over a kitchen, they kind of knew who I was and what I was able to do kind of coming into it. So it was kind of more of like, oh shit, okay, Richard's taking over now. Like, well, let's let's do this. There had been a couple different like people like running the food for Hugh out of five and ten. He hadn't really been like the chef of five and ten for a number of years. So I think the clientele base was kind of used to like seeing some different stuff and changeover and all that kind of stuff. So wasn't that big of a deal. I think Jason Zygmunt worked there for a minute too after his stint up per se and, and everything. So it seems like it's it's been a place for people to kind of 
figure out their next steps too as well it seems when you take over you know you become essentially the executive chef there are you just trying to rehab the menu or rehab the environment from where it was or are you trying to like push boundaries of the menu as to what it is at that time and like hey this could be better like what if we did this like what's like your goal with coming in and everything's already established but like obviously you want to make some changes that was my first like titled exec role like i had been like the years that i was involved at the hotel like the menu was basically me and this other guy you know and doing stuff but this was like my first exec role at a restaurant where it was just like cool the menu's yours do whatever so it was definitely a time where i was like okay i'm gonna like i'm gonna find my my voice like what what kind of food that fits in the parameters of this like restaurant like what kind of food do i want to cook what like yeah basically just like i'm gonna figure out who i am as a chef and then i think like under your watch too like you mentioned you know you get the rising star chef by star chefs i think the restaurant also gets a james beard nomination for outstanding restaurant too as well during that time so when accolades like that kind of start to come for you and the restaurant, even though you know you're not the founder of the restaurant, you weren't part of the opening team, but usually when there's some award recognition, like that's kind of when offers to do other things start coming in. Did that happen for you? If so, how did you kind of approach and manage that? No, it kind of didn't happen. And I never really had an opportunity to uh, kind of strangely enough, like we spent about three and a half years in Athens, had our second child in Athens, you know, Athens at the time and who we were was not best fit. It's, you know, it's a small town. It's an hour away from Atlanta. We kind of lived out in the country a little bit. Uh, I was at work a lot or traveled a lot. I may be speaking for her, but I'm pretty sure we're Emily and my wife like started to hate it and like hated being there. We devised a plan where we were going to actually thinking about coming back to Nashville. I gave you like a four month notice. I was just like, Hey, family shit's coming up. Like I gotta, I know all this cool stuff's happening, but you know, I gotta, I gotta do this family thing. And so I ended up getting, it was the beginning of February is when I got the rising star award and I left five and 10 at the end of February. I don't think uh, the chance uh, ever, ever came to me. I remember when it, it came in, and I got the call. They were like, hey, like, congratulations. Like, you're, you're going to be one of the rising stars. I remember calling you and he just like started cracking up. He was like, well, that's a good parting gift, huh? So I don't think I don't think the opportunity ever really happened. I think I kind of flew under the radar. So you guys are thinking about moving to Nashville. I think you actually wound up in Asheville, right? Because you wind up going to the Admiral. So again, back to this like vagabond aspect of who I am in my life. Through all these changes, very few of them I've sought out. Most of them have just been me saying yes to an opportunity that comes up. And so with Asheville, Asheville was never really on the plan because by then, like I knew we were going to open up a restaurant in Asheville, which didn't work out. And by then, you know, Asheville had started to change. Asheville was getting a lot more expensive. It was losing its kind of like hippie kind of mountain town vibe and kind of turning into this, like what it is now. I gave my notice. We met with a real estate agent because we were going to sell our house in Athens. And so we like, you know, do want to like work on the landscaping, fix this and all that kind of stuff. Got down to, it was the beginning of December. We were supposed to leave in March. That's like when my notice was run up. And so we met with a real estate agent in November. In December, we put our house in the market and it sold in two days. And at the time it was like, hey, this is probably going to take a few months, blah, 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 blah. It sold in two days. Strangely, at the same time, my sister-in-law and her like long-term boyfriend slash baby daddy, like they had a house together, huge falling out. And she was kind of worried about how she was going to make 
her ends meet and what she was going to do, all this kind of stuff. And they had had just that, like, I think my niece was, I don't know, younger than one at the time. And so my wife and her sister are very, very, very close. She wanted to like swoop in and help take care of her sister. And we sold our house and I was still supposed to work at this place for a couple months. We didn't really know what to do. Somehow these sisters conjured up this crazy idea where we were sold our house. We actually moved all of our shit into her house in Asheville. I was commuting from Asheville to Athens, which is a two and a half hour, almost three hour drive. And we were like helping her take care of her bills and get situated and kind of like turn over her new leaf in life. Uh, and we did that for almost three months. My time at five and 10 ended. Um, I was actually talking to Josh about coming to Bastion. And there was just a conversation. We were on a hike one day and Emily was just like, I think we should just stay here. Let's just stay here. And so I remember just like reaching out to a couple of people and just being like, hey, I just need to find some work. Is there any job opportunities? And I remember getting, uh, uh, who's still a good buddy of mine today, um, but Brian Canapelli, who's got Cucina 24 in Asheville. And we're just like, we become like in, like Instagram buddies or whatever. And I was like, hey, I need somebody. He was like, do you want to just like come work for me? He was like, I don't think it'll take long for something to open up for you. So I did that. And I worked with him for about, it wasn't very long. It was probably only about seven weeks, seven or eight weeks. And then the owner of the Admiral got in touch with me and was just like, hey, I need, you know, somebody to like take over this kitchen. Would you be interested in doing so? So I did. Like all these opportunities are kind of like coming at you randomly, you know, I'm like, hey, you could just work here for a couple. Is that just through the network of people that you know? Like, how are people finding you? Is it just like they know somebody and somebody's like, hey, like you should reach out to Richard, like this guy I know, like he's kind of in the market for something he might be... Is it just kind of word of mouth or like, how are people finding you? And like, cause Josh is trying to like get you to the bastion. Like the Admiral comes like two months later is like, Hey, do you want to run our kitchen? Like you're just working temporarily at this other place. Like after commute, like any idea how they find you or anything? Well, I had met Josh when I lived in Nashville before. I've always been a big foraging guy. Like I started picking mushrooms when I was in my late teens. And so I was kind of like in that cuss, especially in the Atlanta area when that became like when Noma became like worldwide, like acknowledgement. And like, of course, everybody was like, I want to go forage too. I was already doing it. So I kind of was like on the cusp of that. And Josh got into it for a while too. And so we met up a couple of times when I lived in Nashville before and went and like pick mushrooms and all that kind of stuff. Um, and he actually invited me to be on the opening team of Bastion when we were there before. But this was like early in his concept phase. Like they, I think they had just signed a lease, like, you know, they were a year out and then the opportunity with you came alongside it never was on the opening team of Ashton. So Josh and I kind of had a rapport. And so I really, I was leaving Athens. I had actually reached out to him and I was like, Hey, I'm thinking about coming back to Nashville. Like, you know, anybody looking for someone like me or anything like that. But yeah, some of the other stuff, it just happened real, real randomly. So your time in Asheville before you guys wind up moving to Nashville, did you enjoy Asheville? Cause like you mentioned the change from what, you know, the place where you were originally going to open your first restaurant it changed pretty drastically from what that was. So did you still enjoy it or was it like after a while, like you guys had kind of the same thing, like with Athens where you're like, I don't want to be here anymore. Asheville was cool. I really enjoyed living in Asheville. I was still too hungry and still too ego driven to be the chef at the Admiral and the owner. And I, I don't know. I think he's a great guy. His name's Drew Wallace. Great dude. But I think like he wanted me to like kind of tone down and play into the crowd a little bit. And I wanted a beard award. Like that was, that was my focus is I wanted a beard award. And so I was pushing hard and I was pushing hard in a town that didn't really want somebody to push too hard. And they didn't want somebody to like push them out of their comfort zones. They weren't looking for venture or new flavor combinations or anything like that. They wanted 
someone to just execute food that they were comfortable with at a high level. And that's not where I was like in my personal headspace or in my career. It's not where I was or where I wanted to be. So that's kind of the only reason that didn't work out. Another Atlanta opportunity came up. And so we ended up taking that instead and didn't stay in Asheville. What opportunity was that? Uh, short-lived. It was very short-lived. So Ryan Smith, who has Staple House, we were cooks together at Bacchanalia years ago. He's oldest buddies for a long time. <clears throat> he was starting the process of like trying to buy the business from the nonprofit that it was attached to. And he was kind of getting burnt out. You know, he had gotten a lot of awesome accolades and all that kind of stuff. And I think he was just looking for someone to like help take the reins off him so he could focus just more on like owner operator. And so in October of 2019, I moved back to Atlanta and took the executive chef role at Staple House. But, you know, March 2020, it shut down and, uh, and then that, that happened. So that was very, very short stint. One of those stints that like, I don't mind talking about it, but I don't even put it on my resume because it, it was such a high profile restaurant that I feel, I feel like it's cheating a little bit if I put it on there. I was like, yeah, I was there for like five months. Like, I don't think it didn't really. When COVID happens and you're down back in Atlanta again, like, what do you do? Like, because everything kind of shuts down, right? So do you have an idea of like what you're going to do, where you might wind up? No. I got so extremely blessed through COVID, like through COVID, like I, I probably spent, so Staple House shut down. We did the PPP money, which was amazing. And then I probably was only unemployed for about three weeks. And then somehow through, you know, the world was shut down. The restaurant world was shut down. And so I ended up just getting in touch with this, like, like one of those like headhunter recruiter things online or whatever, and just like sent them my resume. I had like a little 10 minute phone interview with them, just looking for something. They actually came back to me. Pretty quickly, they're like, hey, there's this old historic resort on this remote island off the Washington state coast. It's not Willow's Inn. They were like, they're looking for someone to kind of like come in and redo their food program, try to make it look like fancy, polished, all that kind of stuff so they can sell it when they can reopen. So I ended up like talking with the HR person at this resort. It's called Rosario Resort. Talking with HR, talking with the general manager of the property and all this kind of stuff. Ended up taking this job. But I mean, it, it was like a fairy tale. Like, it was right in the middle of the pandemic. They gave me a free house to live on on the island. They paid me a shit ton of money. And so I was just like, and it was not very glamorous work. I was teaching people how to make like pizzas from scratch and not fuck up fish and chips in a fryer and how to make a proper burger. Like it was not glamorous food, but I got to live on this like crazy, beautiful Pacific Northwest island surrounded by vol- like snow-capped mountains, volcanoes and ocean. And I had a free place to live. Did you do that throughout like most of the pandemic? Did your family come with you or were you going back and forth? So me, my wife and two kids got paid to move to this fucking island in Washington. Got a free house to live in. Like I didn't pay utilities. I didn't pay rent. And they paid me a shit ton of money. I was there for right at a year because I had signed a 10 month contract because that's, you know, we, we were all like, oh, hopefully in 10 months, shit will get back to normal. And then they asked me to stay on for another month. So I did that. They actually ended up asking if I wanted to take over. And I was like, I can't, can't do that. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was crazy. So I was, I was there from, when was it? I think I got there like middle of June, end of June, 2020. And then I left May, I left end of April, beginning of May of 2021. Did they wind up selling it or no? Yeah, they ended up selling it. When you leave there, is that when you joined Bastion finally? I was up there and I was actually like, I'd already started sending some resumes out because, you know, things were starting to kind of like open back up. And then I got just a random text message from Josh one day and he was just like, hey, dude, he's like, I don't know what you're doing out there. 
if you're happy or not, but uh, I would be remiss if I didn't at least reach out to you. But he was like, we're getting things back up and running. And some of my key people are leaving. Um, this is when Brian and Lena were going to move and open up Kisser. And he was like, I need someone to kind of help come and like help me run things down here. And, and it was a pretty easy decision. One, because we didn't know what we were doing. And two, it was just like, I felt like I'd ar- I'm always supposed to work at Bastion, at least for a time, you know? And so when that came up, I remember like approaching, like sitting my wife down and be like, hey, Josh called me today. He wants me to come work at Bastion. And, like she just kind of like thought about it for a minute. And like without hesitation, she's like, okay, when are we moving? So it brought her close back to her family and randomly things just happening. When you'd finally join the kitchen there, having never worked there, having almost worked there multiple times, you build up this idea of what it is in your head, right? Did it meet that as soon as you walk in and you're like, yeah, this is exactly what I thought it would be or. Yeah, it wasn't that unfamiliar, though, because I had done stages just for fun when I was in Athens. Like there was a time I just like, I don't know, I think the wife and kids were like out of town or something. I, I, I can't remember what the circumstance was, but I went up and just like worked a service with them. When I was at the Admiral, Josh had me up and we did this like really cool kind of like chef collab dinner. And so I kind of like had been in the space. So I kind of like kind of knew what to expect. So I guess I didn't have a whole lot of like expectations, more just kind of like, I think I know what this is going to be like. I guess it it met what I was expecting it to meet. So since you've been there, you know, how has it gone? You pretty much now run, you know, the restaurant, you know, Josh is still there, but do you guys collaborate on new dishes, new menus when they come out? Or is it mostly, you know, you come up with it and then if you get stuck somewhere, you're like, hey, what's your take on this like do you think this would work or what should we change like how do you guys kind of work together well bastion is very i don't think it used to be this way but it kind of morphed after the pandemic but bastion is very atypical and it's not like a restaurant i've ever worked in like technically i'm the chef de cuisine of bastion but it, it doesn't mean what it means in other restaurants um so there's four of us there's myself there's noah there's diana and sean and all four of us have slots on the menu that we're responsible for some have three, some have four, but it kind of like the menu's divided and everybody works on their food. And then my role is to kind of like, I don't know, they refer to me as their spirit guide. Because I just kind of help take their food, their ideas and just kind of elevate it a little bit or make sure that it like makes sense with some kind of like fluidity and continuity to the menu so that it doesn't really like, I mean, you've eaten there, like hopefully the guy is like, you don't realize that you're eating food from four different chefs and four different point of views. There needs to be some kind of continuity there. So that's kind of, my role but and then i just help josh do like presence of like quality control and so that he doesn't have to worry about what's going on at bastion while he's not there i help him do the orders and stuff like that but very interesting environment it's not like one that i've ever worked at or i think that i ever will work at again where it's just like i mean we're only open four days a week there's four of us there's four stations everybody has like three or four slots on the menu and we all just like come in and operate in our own little like mini restaurant world and then just kind of like spill it over to where it like makes sense on like a multi-course tasting menu. So the menu changes with seasons and everything. How hard is it for you guys to not repeat dishes or like fall into some sort of pattern where like, oh, like, yeah, we did this thing basically last year on that menu or somebody had a dish previously, like even before all you guys wound up there because part of the ethos, I think, of Bastion too is always kind of pushing forward. You never really want to go back unless, you know, you can throw out some greatest hits dishes here or there, but I think most people don't really ever want to go back into stuff that they've already done. So how do you guys kind of balance that? Do you flip through like old previous menus that they had, or is it just kind of mental recollection? Like, yeah, I think we kind of did something similar like this. Like what can we change? So it's still good, but it's not like that. So we're kind of still doing something new. 
we almost as like a self-punishment thing, we try to not even do that. I mean, sometimes there's um, be like, hey, you remember last fall? Like I did it with this fish dish that I'm doing right now where I'm like, hey, last fall I did this like pumpkin and marigold dish and I really like that flavor combo. So I want to do that flavor combo again this year in a totally different direction, totally different context, different applications. So sometimes we'll kind of go back on like cool flavor combos that we did. But right now with the team at Bastion, it's kind of easy because all four of us are kind of like, very into the idea and, and driven to like not repeat our stuff to always kind of like try to create new. So it's, it's a lot easier. And I think that's also kind of where my, my creativity, my experience comes in with the other team members is to be like, Hey, think about it like this or like, Hey, I hear you talking about this, but think about this or what if you did this with this, or maybe this should be a sauce and not a puree or just kind of help guide them that way. Are there any boundaries that you either feel you guys haven't explored or pushed against or ones that maybe you haven't really focused on but would like to in the future like whether that's an all vegetarian meal or you know what i mean like is there anything that you guys haven't really focused on but you'd like to in the future probably yes and probably no there's not really a whole lot of like rules Basically, our rules at Bastion are, number one, the first and foremost is don't make it awkward for the guests. And then the second one is Strategic has Catbird and has Baxter, and they're amazing, and they're right in what they do. And so the conversations that I have with, like, Josh and Adam, who's the GM, sometimes are like, okay, how do we, like, push this level of creativity and refinement, but to where it's Bastion and not Catbird? And so we kind of try to, how do we, like, push this level of refinement creativity? And then also, like, take that idea and put it in a where it is a little bit more comfortable and approachable in like a bastion setting as opposed to like a catbird setting, you know? So I think that's kind of like the fun challenge. You know, I'll come up with dishes where it's like, hey, this just needs to be like, bing, 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 and just like, you know, really hyper-focused, really tight. Okay, this tastes great. This is a really cool idea, but how do we, how do we turn it into a shareable dish? Or how do we turn it into something that is, uh, you know, it feels a little bit more familiar or comfortable? So I think that's where like the fun challenge of Bastion comes in. You, I feel like kind of focus on local ingredients is kind of something that you're pretty passionate about. I think your wife, Emily, she studied like holistic ingredients and like well-being, right? So, and having this kind of extra knowledge base from your wife and her studies, do you think more chefs could be doing more with local ingredients than they already are? Or is it kind of like what's local is local, what's good is good. You can only do so much we've all kind of reached max potential of partnering with farms and foraging and all this stuff. No, I mean, I think that's, I think that the potential there is endless back to the five and 10 thing. Probably my favorite thing about my time at five and 10 is, you know, I always have had this, like, I got really enthralled in my early years about like the whole idea of like terroir cooking and like what's happening around you in the natural world right now and cooking with that, like back from the old, like Marco Pierre white quote, where he's just like, yeah, he was like, this grouse was feeding on this, blueberry bush and so now i'm serving grouse and blueberries it's like i don't know that stuff like that's always really hit home for me um but at five and ten um i built this relationship with um this farm called barton trail farms jason jones and my last year at five and ten like i had a hundred percent commitment with him like to the point where he grew it i bought it and he grew extra stuff and like sold to other places all that kind of stuff but we would sit down in January and plan out the spring garden. He's like, okay, what do you want me to grow? Like, let's grow this. This works well, all this kind of stuff. And so I had this relationship with this person where he was growing exactly what I wanted him to grow. And he was, an, he's an amazing farmer. So his stuff was just always just beautiful and perfect in every right. I think stuff like that, like it's something that I haven't been able to find since then. 
And I think that I know that it exists in some other places, especially like uh, state bird provisions out in San Francisco has their own kind of farm and has that, you know, and there's like single thread and Blue Hill stone barns and there's things like that. But I think on a smaller kind of like more local scale, I think that there's an endless potential of that. If I mean, it takes a commitment, it takes a creativity. And there's sometimes where you're like, fuck, what am I supposed to do with all these greens? And what am I supposed to do with this lettuce or, you know, all that kind of stuff. But that's, I mean, that's where some of the fun comes from. Like, you know, like the old, old quotes of like some of the biggest moments of creativity come from the biggest limitations. I watched how much his life prospered during that time. I noticed how much fun I was having as a chef, how my, like how I was breaking my own molds and pushing my own creativity and learning things and learning how to use things and learning how to appreciate things that is invaluable. And so I think, I think that's definitely an area that people could focus more on. I think that it also depends on like scene by scene, city by city. I mean, Every city has its own kind of like food scene and own ethos and all that kind of stuff. There's definitely those out there that are like, everybody likes to cook the same thing. Everybody likes to grow the same thing. And I I don't know, I feel like that gets stagnant for farmers and chefs. And so I think building those relationships with the farmers and building that stability and like financial structure for them that gives them the comfortability knowing that they can take chances and grow things because they know that somebody is going to buy them. I think is a, a beautiful way to really push food forward the beautiful thing about food is like it's all been done before and it, there's always new stuff to do at the same time so yeah you're kind of talking about almost like an exclusive partnership with like a farm or like an exclusive ingredient like grower relationship like there's i forget the restaurant it's some place in new york but like they have somebody that grows like these berries or whatever like it's exclusively like for them and it's like it's this whole thing i think it's a super expensive berry but it's super flavorful it's unique variety all this stuff and there are like other restaurants that do it but a lot of the ones that you mentioned like they have their own farm on site so not everybody can do that so i think yeah like it would make sense where it's maybe you can't directly partner with a farm exclusively because your restaurant maybe doesn't consume enough of what they grow they're too large versus your size whatever but like the one-off kind of like, hey, could you just grow us this specific melon? That does seem like that would probably be like the next iteration of like the farm-to-table movement or, or whatever you want to call it. I think it just takes a little bit of organization. Like for me, something that I figured out, like working so closely with so many different farmers and working in places that had their own farms and all that kind of stuff, you know, it just takes like, okay, when you're comfortable in a kitchen, you kind of know how much stuff you're going to use. And so then it's just like, okay, well, I know that I need... 10 pounds of these like crazy little rutabagas that only grow in Alsace. Like I want to grow, I want these rutabagas. I know I need 10 pounds a week. I know I'm probably going to run this dish for two months. So like, Hey, fire, like if you will plant 80 pounds of rutabagas in four different successions for me, like I'll buy it all. Like you don't have to worry about selling it. Like I'll literally buy it just if you'll just grow it for me. Yeah. Like you're saying like things like that, I think could really like make a cool, cool path forward. Based on your experiences, what has been the biggest difference between the food scenes in Atlanta and Asheville and Nashville? Is it mostly ingredients or is it just the vibe of the guest like you kind of touched on earlier? Like what's been that triangle? Because I think a lot of stuff overlaps. A lot of people move between those three places. What's been the biggest difference that you've noticed between all three of them? Asheville probably has like the hardest clientele base because it's either people like most of it's like tourism or most of it is the people that live in Asheville. Like there's a ton of money that comes through Asheville, but I would say most of the people that live there are industry workers. So limited resources. So it's like Asheville is the hardest clientele base, but it's also the place where 
I've worked with like the best ingredients. The best produce I've ever worked with has been when I was in Asheville and Athens, but uh, that's because of that special relationship, you know, but just kind of like a normal stance, like Asheville is the best produce, hardest clientele. Atlanta, omitting my time when I was at Staple House, but just kind of going back to when I was there, you know, I, I mean, technically I left Atlanta in 2010. And when I was in Athens, Athens, like, Athens is, to me is a different animal, but going back to my time there before Atlanta was a very like unsupporting, like the restaurants didn't support each other. It was always like competition. Like you're always like, Oh, fuck those guys over there. Or they think they're cool, you know, whatever. And then Nashville is the opposite of that. Like Nashville, I think one of the best things about the Nashville food scene is, and why there's so much like growth in awesome things happening in Nashville is the fact that like, like when you come to Bastion, we're like, Hey, how long are you in town? Okay. You got to go to fucking here and get lunch or you got to go here. You got to go check this out. Like these guys are doing great things. Like it's all supportive. Like everybody kind of supports each other. And I mean, I'm sure there's some shit talking going on there. All that happens. But I would say out of all the cities that I've like lived and cooked in Nashville has been the most supportive of one another. With that being the environment that you experienced in Atlanta, does it surprise you then that they brought in a Michelin guide? Like Atlanta and Denver both got guides. The Denver one came out, the Atlanta one hasn't so far. But were you surprised by that announcement? And then also, if Nashville got one, which seems like it would make more sense than, in my mind, at least Denver anyways, what would your reaction be? Yeah, my, my reaction about Atlanta getting one uh, was surprising. Not that there's not some people down there that are not doing things deserving of like stars or anything like that, but it just, it's food scene doesn't, I feel like Atlanta's bubble popped and hasn't regained its traction. Like if you were to come, I mean, granted, I haven't lived there in there a long time and I don't pay that much attention to it, but if you came up to me and you're like, hey, I'm going to Atlanta for the weekend, where should I go eat? I'm like, well, I don't know, you get on Eater, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's a little surprised. It doesn't surprise me just for a sheer size and a sheer like international travel size. Like so many people come into Atlanta, have long layovers in Atlanta. So that kind of aspect I get. I think outside of like New York, I feel like on the eastern side of things, I think Nashville and maybe DC are the only places that really have like vibrant food scenes. I feel like Charleston's bubble popped a while ago, but it's getting it back. And I know Dano Hines has got Burns down there and he's kind of taking this like really cool approach on this like modern bistro thing. Uh, there's this other place, Chubby Fish, that I think is doing cool things. So I think Charleston's kind of like regaining its like running shoes. Um, I don't think Atlanta's found that yet, although I'm not in that scene. So I can't really like, I don't want to be like the judgment for it. But I would be surprised if Nashville doesn't. It's a travel destination alone. Um, it's vibrancy of food scene alone. Yeah, I would be surprised if, if the guy didn't come to Nashville. Is that something you would personally welcome is it something you want to see or is that something because it comes with you know i've had a discussion recently just because of the announcements and stuff with a few different people and when you get a michelin guide in your city it elevates the expectations but it also kind of boxes people in in terms of creativity i think too as well so would you welcome it would you be kind of skeptical at first like like would you want to have to like try and get into the michelin guide like you mentioned your focus was winning the james beard award when you're at the admiral so like is that something that you still want to do no because i don't for uh risk of ridicule i don't think it just doesn't mean to me what it used to mean like when josh got to the short list like we were all very happy but he and i would have conversations and be like yeah, i mean it's cool i guess sure but it didn't like to me it used to be such like a make or break career thing be like if i can win a beard award then i have fucking made it and it just i don't know it's not true anymore but also that comes from some maturity like i'll be 40 in december so i don't think how i used to think when i was 30 i don't know and me personally i would welcome a guy just because 
I think it's cool. I think it's back to the same thing of like, you know, rising tides raise all ships. And I think could do a lot of good, but I, I agree with the box in thing and like the race perception. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people that don't get the, I guess, like a claim they should based on the expectation people had for them. Like there's some people, I'm not going to name any names in Nashville, that they could probably be running like amazing restaurants, but they're not getting the claim because people have too much expectation for them. And at the end of the day, it's food. It's never going to like, it's never going to bring the like God inspiring like feelings. Like it's food. Some of us are more creative than others. Some of us know how to use salt and acid a little bit better than others, but like still shit at the end of the day. So I think like the, the Michelin guy thing, I think it'd be cool. And I think it just kind of comes down to like perception and gumption with like individual places. Like I know, like one of the things I respect about Josh the most is like, whether he would have won that beard award or whether like Michelin's guy comes and gives us a star or whatever, like he's not going to change what he's doing at Bastion. Like what he's got works for him, works for his clientele base. Like we're a fun, full, constantly full like restaurant that like we don't really need to like change what we're doing. So even if a star guide or whatever came, like we have that peace of mind where we can still just do what we do. So you've been in Nashville, you know, a decent amount, you know, been there before, moved, you know, left, came back, all that stuff. But since you've kind of been involved in the food scene, restaurant scene, how has it kind of changed? Is there anything you want to see change, you know, with it going forward, whether it's different concepts or, you know, different ingredients coming in or anything like that? Man, on the food scene, like if I could take, if I could pick Nashville up and move it closer to the mountains, I would never leave. But like all my biggest hobbies like revolve around the mountains like i'm very outdoorsy i'm obsessive about fly fishing and all this kind of stuff so like that's it but like i think that speaks volumes of nashville like nashville is especially on the food scene front like i think it's amazing like the talent that's in this town and the talent that have like insanely genuine and good-hearted people surrounded by it i don't is is not like any other place i worked at if i had to change if i could like wave a magic wand or change anything it's definitely one of the lacking or the most lacking like agricultural scenes I've ever cooked in. I think it's definitely one of those things. Like when you go to the farmer's markets, like here's hawk ride turnips, here's chioga beets, here's lasanado kale, here's green onions. And then you go around the, the stalls and everybody has the same stuff and everybody grows the same stuff. And that's changing a little bit and it's growing a little bit. But if I could wave a magic wand, I would just, I would, I would change that aspect. Not really anything about the restaurant scene, but just about like some of the agricultural availability for those insanely talented people. What's next for you professionally? Do you still want to open a restaurant on your own one day down the road or? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the goal for sure. Again, back to that kind of like vagabond nature of me where it's just kind of like, but I definitely think that like, you know, as my kids get older, as I get older, like looking into like that thing that uh, creating something that I could pass down to them is kind of like starting to really loom in my head. Because if it was just me and if I was just single, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm a vagabond, I guess. But uh but yeah, creating that thing where they, they can be a part of it, it can be a part of their lives, can be something that can like be passed on to them, like leave a little legacy for them, like it's starting to become more increasingly important to me. So this next question comes from the previous guest on the podcast, sommelier Sam Rethmeyer of Wednesday Night Wine Club out in LA. He left behind for you. Is there a poem or quote that resonated with you in life that still sticks with you to this day? Many, but the first one that came to my head here, hold on one second. I got to get a book. I'll read it to you. This uh, from Mirzor book. I remember really trying to like redefine, you know, I think as like chefs, like we always, I don't know. I feel like we go through stages where we like create our identity or our, like food voice. 
And then that sticks around for, you know, a good number of years. And then it alters and changes and evolves and grows. And I remember when I was on the island uh, in Washington, trying to figure out like, okay, like the world's opening back up. I'm going to get back into the swing of things. Like, what do I want to do? Like, I was like, food speak to me now or all this kind of stuff. And I remember looking through the Mirazor book and like read this little quote and it just like really tied in for who I am and like kind of like, I guess, getting back to like my grass roots of like what initially got me really into food and into like wanting to create, you know, flavors and all that kind of stuff to find it one of these days. This also uh, comes from a guy who has uh, an entire left arm sleeve tattooed in nothing but mushrooms. I remember this this quote or this little like, little passage like really stuck to me. Uh, it says, mushrooms tell us about woods. They silently tell us in the Earth's extended language their different names, their fertile dampness, the noise roots make that open up maps into the deep subterranean darkness. Their dark work switches on our senses, illuminating what our eyes can't see. Could be anything. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything. If you could only operate with one color moving forward, whether you're a chef or you know, a restaurateur setting up like the decor in your restaurant or whatever. But if you had to pick one color to operate from, or if you were a chef and you could only really work with one color of food, what color would that be? Next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, if you could replace your city's iconic ingredient dish with another city's, which city ingredient would you pick to swap in and why? And I would assume like Nashville probably would be, I guess, hot, chicken yeah hot chicken's gotta go i would definitely get rid of hot chicken and if i could bring in another cities or not, i'm trying to think about other cities that have like food nomenclatures like that well like detroit would be pizza or i guess you could even say maybe like even chicago i guess you'd be pizza too i think if i could like get rid of hot chicken and bring something in i would just bring in more more ethnic food more ethnicity and because in nashville like there's a, a decent amount of like good thai spots there's like a good thai population here there's a great Mexican population here, so we uh, have that, but that's about it. Like Nashville's really lacking in ethnic food. So if I could replace that, I would just bring more ethnicity and get rid of hot chicken. So last set of questions here, we ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast. So a nice compare and contrast across the episodes for the listener. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career when you look back on it? I would probably say David Kinch. Just watching, I never got to eat there, um, but watching what he did at Manresa, like I remember as a young cook before like cook, you know, before cookbooks or any come out, like I would like Manresa and Blue Hill Stone Barns were like the two restaurants that probably like two, three times a month, I would like get online just to look at their menu, just to see that. And one of the things that I loved about David Kinch is just his like inherent connection to the land that he was on and how he wanted to create food that represented, like, I think it's even in his book, but I remember like this dish he created was just like i want this dish to look taste and feel like a tidal pool because i see these every day when i go out to surf like i don't know that kind of like connection and romance into food really really captivated me at a young age and kind of inspired me to like walk down some of the paths that i walked down what's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without spoon Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So scenario, usually get a person gets stuck at the airport, stuck overnight. You guys are closed. They reach out to you. Hey, where should we go eat? You point them in this direction. In Nashville, either Locust, Catbird, or Kisser. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. Place you have not visited yet, you still want to get to. 
place you have not dined at, but you still want to eat at one day? Place I haven't been to, I mean, to, to sound super cliche, uh, Copenhagen, but a place that I would love to eat at would probably be Bray in Australia. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? And I've seen some injury stuff, but I don't know. One of the things that like was the most shocking to me was watching uh, a couple get divorced right there in front of me. That was pretty like, what the fuck just happened? Was this at a place that like you had counter seating? It was at Bastion. We literally watched these people sitting right in front of, they were sitting right in front of me and Noah. Everything seemed fine or whatever. And then they like, something happened and they got into a little fight and then literally like broke up. And then like an hour later, the woman was sitting on the curb outside. Like the guy had just left and she was waiting on like, one of her friends or an Uber or something to come pick her up. They finished the meal? Like they finished through the whole thing? They finished it. <laughs> Which I think was why it was so crazy. We we're just like, hey, what is happening right now? And like, what? Like, why are you still eating? Like, what are you doing? This is some major life shit happening right now. I'm like, and I'm over here just like, oh, let me tell you about your dessert. Here you go. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever that, uh, you know, is pretty unhealthy, but you just can't help yourself. Drink would be, I, I don't know. I, again, my wife is a, a nutritional therapy practitioner, so She's molded me over the past 13 years, so I don't need a lot of junk food or fast or anything like that. But I do like guilty drink of choice are those like super sugary cans of like milk tea that you can get at like the Asian grocery stores. One brand in particular, when I see it, I'll buy it. They're, they're, it's just called Royal. It says Royal and then it's like milk tea. And they're like these shorty little cans. They're probably horrible for you. And there's like, they have so much sugar, but they, God, they're so good. And then food, guilty pleasure, probably pizza. I'm a, I'm a slut for it. Even when it's not that good, I'll eat an inch of it. What is one cookbook you think everyone should own, whether they're an aspiring chef, at-home cook, whatever? I'd probably go old school and say probably Alain Passard's vegetable book. Favorite dish thing you ever cooked, created, kind of looking back over the course of your career up to now, you can almost consider this like your aha moment. Like When you made this thing, you kind of knew you could be a professional chef one day. I mean, in that context, like I got really um, like early in the career, I got really into charcuterie and making like terrines and things like that. And I remember making a head cheese one time and had like my chef de cuisines and like executive chefs and all that kind of stuff just being like, fuck, dude. And I think that was one of those moments where I'm like, all right, I think I can do this. Anthony Bourdain episode moment scene. So, you know, I'm a fan. Uh, not everybody is or was, but if you were, there's something about him that you still kind of remember. If you weren't, is there anybody else who was a culinary personality, somebody on TV, uh, Jacques Pepin, Julia Child, Emeril, uh, somebody that you kind of gravitated towards through your career when you were coming up? No, it was, it was Bourdain for sure. I always hated cooking shows. Like There was just always like a cheese factor to me that I could never really get behind. Bourdain was definitely the one I was just like, it just kind of like I don't know, brought it into like real life context. And um, I, I kind of liked his like dark sense of humor approach to, to all of it. I liked watching... Um, Andrew Zimmern and his like bizarre food tangs just to go like, just to like have an exposure of like shit I didn't even know existed. But yeah, Bourdain was just like, he was Bourdain, you know, he's one of a kind. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. I'm, I'm horrible about all of that stuff. Um, I do a really shitty job, but I am on Instagram. Um, Arneel Chef, that's kind of it. The restaurant is Bastion. You guys just switched from talk to seven rooms, right? For the reservation system but if you go to the website book your reservation is it still the same where like the first of the month releases the next month book right 
Yeah, same thing, just a different thing. And we switched to seven rooms. Um, you know, Josh took his partnership with Strategic. And so they're trying to integrate, basically they're trying to integrate like the the three, you know, top tier ones. They're trying to integrate Catbird, Bastion, and Locust into the same system so that we can share guest notes with each other so that we can kind of just like, you know, heighten guest experience for people that may visit all three or, you know, went to Locust last time they were in Nashville and this time they're going to Catbird or Bastion or vice versa or whatever. So, but yeah, first of the month, we release reservations for the following month. And then you guys are open Wednesday through Saturday? Wednesday through Saturday. It's staggered seating. So we only seat from 5.30 to 6.30 and then 7.45 to 8.45. And it's Bastion Nashville on Instagram. But yeah, we've been, uh, I've been a couple times. First time we went was during the pandemic when they had the bar, the big bar side. Uh, they converted that into kind of a restaurant. So that was the first time we went and then went this past year. Um, when I was down there, the counter and everything, the proper experience, I guess, uh, you would say, but no, it's an awesome time. Uh, good food. The menu too is like, like split between it's a tasty menu, but like, there's also that kind of like choose your own adventure component. Like you kind of feel like in there, you know, I mean, you guys are more so on the tasty menu side now, but, um, just with kind of how it's structured and, and even with kind of like, you know, I know you can do it at every place probably, but like you know, you can do the pairing, but then you can kind of do one-off stuff too as well and mix it in there. Like everybody's pretty chill and pretty like, yeah, like, well, whatever you want to do. Like, we're not like, yeah, you could either do this or do that or or whatever. And, you know, it's the counter seating, which is a cool vibe. I got to imagine it's probably slightly annoying for some of you taller guys because I feel like you always had to like duck under like the thing, the like the header up there. I hit my head on it so many times. Just these big steel bars. Like I'll go in and talk to people and just be like, what? I'm like, oh. Here, here's your food. Just knock myself out. But yeah, it's a cool spot. I mean, it's a, it's a good time. You got the bar side on the other time. Either you guys have a bar within like, you know, the restaurant side too. There's the bar and then it opens up and everything, but there's the music venue on the other side too. And some other stuff in the area, that stretch of building on uh, that warehouse building. But yeah, can't recommend it enough. You know, it's one of our recommends for anybody who's going to Nashville and ask like, where should we go? Yeah, it's an awesome food scene. We'll be stopping back in um, and seeing you. You know where to find me. Big thanks again to Richard for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day to come on and talk about his career and everything. Basically in between kind of fly fishing trips for him. There's a lot of outdoor fishing and everything like that. Pretty heavily featured on his Instagram where you can follow him. Uh, it's at R Neil Chef. You can also follow the restaurant Bastion. It's at Bastion Nashville. As I mentioned, reservations, they switched over from talk to seven rooms. So you go to their website, it'll take you right to the reservation platform. You can make a reservation there. You can also follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. Check us out, our website, SpoonMob.com. Make sure to follow, subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform that you listen to and use. Um, We're on all of them there. As soon as you kind of follow the podcast on their preferred app, all the episodes just drop straight in your feed as soon as they come out. Thursdays, 1 a.m. Eastern. We also have a YouTube channel. It's just at SpoonMob on YouTube. You can find us. Just look for the orange and white logo and all our episodes make their way up on the YouTube channel as well. So if you prefer to use YouTube to listen to podcasts, 
we have that option for you too as well. So appreciate everybody who's been listening, writing in. And, you know, as we get kind of closer and closer to wrapping up the year here, kind of year three, having people on the podcast. So been a lot of fun up till now. We'll probably take a break, you know, sometime early next year for a little bit, a little reset um, when we get into kind of the dog days of winter and everything. Yeah, no formal announcements on that. Still planning on doing a mailbag episode at some point for you guys too as well, kind of blowing out some of these questions that we got that have uh, been written in and sent in and everything. So we'll answer as many of those as we can. That is it for this week. Appreciate everybody's listening, spreading the word. If you're new, welcome. Hope you're enjoying kind of what we're doing. Make sure to check out the back catalog of all the episodes we have so far. And if you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support and continued listenership. New episodes on the way for next Thursday. But until then, have a great weekend and we will talk to you guys next week.